Welcome back to the Word on Fire show. I'm Brandon Vaught, the host and the content director at Word on Fire. Today we're going to be sharing a talk that Bishop Robert Barron recently gave to the Knights of Malta. His talk was titled, Ideas Have Consequences, The Philosophers That Shaped 2020. You don't need me to tell you that our culture is going through a convulsive period. You can look around and see all the rioting, the accusation, the scapegoating, the violence, the deep unrest we find both online and offline. We might do well not to focus so much on these events in themselves, but to step back and ask, where did these things come from? What ideas produced these results? And that's the point of Bishop Barron's talk. He focuses in on four thinkers who have had a profound impact on shaping the world that we're currently confronting. The four thinkers are Karl Marx, Friedrich Nietzsche, Jean-Paul Sartre, and Michel Foucault. In his talk, he looks at each of these four thinkers. However, we're going to share the first half of that talk today. So we'll focus on Karl Marx and Friedrich Nietzsche today. And then the next episode, we'll look at Sartre and Foucault. So sit back and enjoy the first half of this talk titled, Ideas Have Consequences, The Philosophers That Shaped 2020. Enjoy. Well, it's my pleasure to address the Knights of Malta at your national gathering. You're a group that I've admired uh, over the years, so thank you for your invitation. You know, in recent weeks and months, as our country goes through this convulsive time, I can't tell you how many people have asked me, Bishop, what is going on? (laughs) How do you explain what's happening on our streets? What's happening with the rhetoric people are using? What's going on in our culture? Well, there have been all kinds of analyses, you know, political and economic and sociological. But, you know, by training and instinct, I'm a philosopher. And philosophers always ask the fundamental questions. I think to understand what's going on, we have to put on our philosophers' caps. And so what I want to do with you in the talk today is look at this question philosophically by stepping back a bit from it. I'm going to propose to you four thinkers, two Germans from the 19th century, two Frenchmen from the 20th century, who have been extraordinarily influential on the way we think and the way we act today. And I think understanding um, these philosophers will help us understand what's happening in our time. Now, the four I've got in mind, I'll do them chronologically. First, Karl Marx. Secondly, Friedrich Nietzsche. Thirdly, Jean-Paul Sartre. And finally, Michel Foucault. Marx, Nietzsche, Sartre, and Foucault. I think to understand their philosophies is to understand a lot of what's going on in the academy today, and also now on the streets. So let's begin with Karl Marx, undoubtedly the best known of these four uh, figures. Now, many of us who lived through the events of the 1980s and 1990s with the downfall of the Soviet Union and the Soviet bloc and so on, might be forgiven for thinking that Marx was going to be placed on the ash heap of history. But Marx has been taught now for the past at least 50 years in most of the academies of the West. And as you know, he's undergoing a sort of revival today, especially among the young. And I think Marxism um, explains at least a fair amount of what's going on today. Just a bit about Marx personally. He was born in Trier in the western part of Germany in the year 1818. 
descended on both sides of his family, by the way, from a long line of rabbis. And, and you will see something of the biblical prophet, I think, in Mark's. And, and something of a, though transformed and, and uh, bent out of shape, a kind of religious view of things. As a young man, he studies the fashionable Hegelianism of the time, and then very quickly drifts into radical politics. First in Germany, also in Belgium and France, he lived for a time in Paris. Um, because of his agitations, he was uh, expelled from those three countries. Eventually, he finds his way to more tolerant uh, England, and he settles in London. That's where he spends the rest of his life, and where he writes his major work, the famous Das Kapital. In fact, if you go to the British Museum, they'll show you to this day the desk and the chair where Marx sat and wrote Das Kapital. He dies in London in 1883, and he's buried in Highgate Cemetery there. I suppose you need uh, no um, encouragement from me to see the extraordinary impact that Marx had throughout the 20th century and up till today, politically speaking. Now, there are a lot of themes in Marx's thought that we could pursue. I mean, he's one of the most written about figures in Western culture. I'll just look at a couple. The first theme in Marx I'll look at is his atheism. Now, the young Marx was a devotee of a man named Ludwig Feuerbach, and Feuerbach is quite rightly called the father of modern atheism. Most atheists you read today are echoing themes in Feuerbach. Feuerbach said that we human beings have a tendency to project outside of ourselves an idealized self-understanding. So, you know, I'm intelligent, but I'd like to be all intelligent. I'm, I'm loving, but I'd like to be all loving. I've got some power. Boy, if I had all power. So we take this idealized self-understanding, myself as all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, and we project it outward. We call it God. And then we spend our kind of pathetic religious lives petitioning this, fictive, this fictional character to give back to us what we gave to him. So Feuerbach sees religion as a kind of alienation. It's a psychological problem. Well, young Karl Marx takes this in, and all his life long, he remains a devotee of Feuerbach. In fact, he said um, famously, everyone must be baptized in the Feuerbach, and that means in German, the, the brook of fire. So everyone's got to go through this, this baptism into Feuerbach's atheism. Okay, but Marx asks a further question. Namely, how come we human beings almost universally, think of, of how universally uh, applicable religion is around the world, why do we do it? Why do we engage in this alienating uh, move? Marx's extremely influential answer was, because we are already so unhappy and so alienated in our economic lives, because we're so oppressed, we invent a fantasy world to live in. Hence his famous line, religion is the opium of the people. So it actually was in Marx's time, in, in places like London, that these opium dens were opening up. People would you know, retreat from the world, they take opium, they live in a fantasy world, they destroy their lives in the process. So Marx said that's most human beings. They take the opium of religion to dull their sensitivity to their suffering and to invent a fantasy world. So Marx's very influential view of 
what religion is and why we engage in it. Now, this gives us a clue too, and this is the second major idea I want to develop because it's hugely impactful today. Religion is part of what Marx calls the superstructure. So every society from ancient times to the present day, Marx thought, has a substructure which is always economic. Whether it's the slave economy of the ancient world, the feudal economy of the medieval world, a, a serf-based economy in, in Russia of the 18th century, and then the capitalist economy of his own time. That's the core or the substructure of any society. But the substructure throws up around itself what he calls the superstructure. The superstructure has one purpose. It is to enhance and protect the substructure. That's its purpose. Now, what's the superstructure? Everything else in the society. So Marx says, for example, um, politics. What's the whole purpose of politics? And we surround it with you know, all sorts of uh, um, descriptions and honors, and, and, and we, we look at it in a very exalted way. But what's the purpose of politics? Is to protect the economic uh, substructure. He would say, what do most politicians talk about most of the time, but economic matters? What's the purpose of the military, which serves political interests? Well, it's to protect uh, the, the capitalist system to expand uh, markets and to protect them in foreign environments, etc. What are wars fought over? Marx said, always over economic matters. What's entertainment's purpose? Well, to distract us from our suffering, which is why rich people often support forms of entertainment. There, it's a bit like religion, the opium of the people. How about the arts? Well, the arts are part of the superstructure. The arts are you know, for the most part, subsidized by wealthy people, and the arts over the centuries tend to glorify those in the power structure. Okay, substructure protected by this elaborate superstructure. Now, what's the point of the Marxist intellectual is to break through the superstructure, to expose it for what it is, to break its, its power over us, so that we can get at the economic substructure and fight to revolutionize it. But see, we can't foster the revolution until we break through the superstructure. Now here's uh, something just to kind of beguile you. We all know The Wizard of Oz. You know there's a very Marxist way to read The Wizard of Oz, where you've got the tin uh, um, uh, woodsman who stands for industry that has no heart, you got the cowardly lion. Well, he's the military that has no real courage. You've got the um, scarecrow. He's, he's uh, the farmer that has no brains. But the one I find really interesting on this Marxist reading of The Wizard of Oz is the man behind the curtain. So here's this little figure who's pulling the levers and producing this grand illusion of The Wizard of Oz. Well, who's the wizard? Well, that's probably God and religion. But Toto, the little dog, pulls back the curtain and reveals this little figure behind the curtain. Well, that's, you could say, Marx's superstructure and substructure. The idea is break through the protective shell, get to the core, and then get the revolution going. Now, how? By stirring up an antagonism between oppressor and oppressed. So at the heart of the Marxist theory, and 
it would take us all day to go into the details of that, but at the heart of it is an oppressor-oppressed relationship. The capitalist oppressing the worker and thereby deriving profit. The Marxist revolutionary has to cut through all the superstructure and then foment the class struggle that will lead to the revolution. Now, I, I'm sure a lot of that is fairly familiar to you. And at the end of the talk, I'll try to pull out some implications for the present day conversation. But I think you can begin to hear overtones in the way people are speaking and acting today. Now, the second person I want to look at is Friedrich Nietzsche. I become convinced that this 19th century philosopher is at least as influential in our time as Karl Marx. Nietzsche, like uh, many other modern thinkers, and this in itself is kind of an interesting theme, uh, was the son of uh, the parsonage. So Nietzsche's father was a Lutheran uh, pastor. Nietzsche was born near Leipzig in 1844. Very early on, he abandoned uh, the Christian faith he would have inherited from his father. And he became a student of classical philology. So the study of language became his preoccupation. Now, this is very interesting because you'll see now the next person I'll look at, Jean-Paul Sartre, who was deeply indebted to Nietzsche, fascinated with the power of language. In fact, his autobiography is called Les Mots in French, The Words. And then Michel Foucault, also deeply influenced by Nietzsche, Language is a central preoccupation of his. Notice today, and I'll come back to this, how important language is and the proper uh, protocols and policing of language. I'll come back to that. So Nietzsche does hold a university position for a time. In fact, he's one of the youngest professors in the German system. But his, his rather strange personality and bad health compromised his academic career. He did most of his writing in the 1880s, so when he was in his uh, 40s. 1889, he uh, endures a, a kind of collapse, both physical and, and mental. People speculate what it was. Um, psychological illness, syphilis, uh, brain uh, issues, we don't really know. But for the last 10 years of his life, he lived basically in seclusion and in a kind of madness. He died in the year 1900. Now, Friedrich Nietzsche, with whom I am in radical disagreement, but I have to say he was one of the most oh, fecund and creative thinkers in the Western tradition. He had an extraordinarily fertile mind. He wrote somewhat in the manner of Blaise Pascal, by which I mean he wrote aphoristically, kind of short little declarations and short sentences. It makes reading him kind of interesting. It's not like plowing through a text. He does write that way sometimes, but often in this aphoristic manner. Um, again, thousands of ideas we could look at in Nietzsche. I'll just look at a couple that I think are very important for today. The first one, probably he's best known for this, is the death of God. Now here, he's like Feuerbach and like Marx. God is dead and we've killed him. A famous line he puts in the mouth of one of the characters in uh, Thus um, uh, Spake Zarathustra. Um, maybe his most famous line, God is dead and we kill them. Um, what I want to explore, though, is the implication he draws from this truth. So we saw what Marx did with the, with the non-existence of God. What does Nietzsche do? He draws the conclusion that the foundation for meaning, truth, and value 
but it held sway in, in the West really from biblical times and from ancient times to the present was now giving way. Now, what do I mean here? Well, for most of Western thought, both theological coming up out of the Bible and philosophical coming up out of ancient Greece, for most of Western thought, God serves as the foundation for objective truth and objective moral value. God is the logos or the supreme reason. God is the sumum bonum, the ultimate good. And in God, all the truths and goods that we intuit about the world are finally grounded and find their justification. So if there's no God, God is dead and we killed him. If there's no God, then there's no foundation for the claim that there are objective truths and objective moral values. All of that gives way as well. What are we left with? What Nietzsche calls perspectivism, my perspective on it, your perspective on it, his perspective, her perspective, all these millions of perspectives. In our language today, we might say, well, it's my truth and you got your truth. And she's got her truth over there. But there's nothing like the truth to which we are all beholden. Well, there's my set of values. From my perspective, I see it this way. You've got your set of values. But there's no such thing as the valuable, the good in itself. The death of God has led to a radical relativizing of truth and moral value. Okay. What does Nietzsche recommend in light of this situation? He recommends that we face this world of no objective truth and no objective value with the power of the will. I assert my will to power. So yes, in the face of this, of this bleak situation, I assert my own will. Hence Nietzsche became a harsh critic of the morality coming up out of the Christian tradition. Now why? Well, our morality puts a stress on pity, on compassion, on love, on forgiveness, on nonviolence. What is that on Nietzsche's terms but a slave morality? It's a resentful morality. Those who have, who have not effectively asserted their will to power, those who have been put down, are now kind of urging the, the powerful people to, you know, be nice to us, forgive us, be, have pity for us. Ah, says Nietzsche, slave morality. Rather, assert your will to power. Now, this does lead to a kind of Hobbesian world of, of clashing wills. I mean, because I got mine, you got yours. There's no really objective measure by which we can determine which of us is more right or more justified. And so you've got a clash of powerful wills. Leading to, again, a very uh, influential idea of Nietzsche's, of the Übermensch in his German. Superman, it's often translated, the overman. Well, here's the hero, and it's reflected, he thinks, in some of the best of the, of the Greek and Roman myths. The great heroic figure who stands up and asserts himself. 
Yes, in the kind of howling winds of this world of no objective truth and value, but asserts the primacy of will. Now, I'll come back to this, but that issue of the primacy of will over reason, I think is visible on the streets of our cities today. Well, we hope you enjoyed the first half of Bishop Barron's talk on Ideas Have Consequences, the philosophers that shaped 2020. Remember that we're going to share the second half of the talk coming up soon in a future episode, and that one will cover Jean-Paul Sartre and Michel Foucault. So look forward to that. But before then, we'll have another discussion episode with Bishop Barron, who should be with us back in the studio next week. So thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on the Word on Fire show.